Now that the dust has settled from the Baltimore meetings, where do we go from here? There's pressure on the U.S. southern borders and tensions in different parts of the world have many people stirred up. What's the church's role in these affairs? You might see a new celebrant at Mass this weekend as a number of our priests are beginning their reassignments. And what's a doctor of the church? And does the church need a doctor today? All these topics and more coming up next. Welcome to A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is a candid and hopeful conversation on current events that affect our church, our community, and our country. Now, here's Bishop Parks and the General Manager of Spirit FM, John Morris. Bishop Parks, always good to see you. John, great to be with you today. Last time we talked, you were planning a trip to Baltimore. What were the results of the meetings at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops? Well, fortunately, uh, it was a productive meeting. Uh, It was a business meeting, and uh, we were able to approve several different items that were put forth to vote on, including some new guidelines and regulations regarding the investigation of bishops when there's accusations brought against them, either directly against them for abuse on their part or for negligence in handling cases of abuse. So that was just one of the, and probably the primary item that we did vote on at this meeting. Did you notice more press there? this time, or was it about the same? Actually, uh, John, there was less. Really? Uh, I would say compared to November, there was significantly less press there. I'm not sure if that was because of the change in this being a, a summer meeting. We weren't supposed to be in Baltimore this mm-hmm. summer, but because of everything going on in the church, felt it was necessarily to have a business meeting. But uh, no, there was some press there, but not a, not a huge amount. I'm not sure if it had to do with it being the summer months or there not being much expectation <laughs> that there was things going to happen, but actually there were a number of good things that happened at this meeting. Sure. What was the general mood of the of the men coming together? Was there a sense of hopefulness? Was there a sense of we've got to get things done? What was the general feel? I, I think uh, it was definitely focused, very businesslike. I think most of the bishops came prepared to do things. So there were some of the normal uh, celebration kind of things like receptions or dinners that we might have were not present at this meeting. It was pretty much just a business meeting, which it needed to be. So I think most of the bishops came with an attitude of being focused on what we needed to do and uh, wanted to get it done. One of the things that came out that I've I've heard different pundits talk about and, and was that lay personnel be on this review board for bishop accountability, I'll say. It's something that came out of Rome that said it wasn't required. It was maybe recommended and I think some people felt like that wasn't strong enough that it should be. Are there lay, will, will that be a, a case nationally, or is that adopted by each diocese? Well, a number of points. Uh, first of all, one of the things that we did approve was a third-party reporting system on a nationwide basis. So it's in the process of being set up right now, and ultimately will be, I, I would imagine, a, a toll-free number that the faithful or anyone can call if they have a accusation against a bishop specifically. That information will be shared with the Metropolitan Archbishop, who in, in our case here in St. Petersburg would be Archbishop Wensky in Miami, the Archdiocese of Miami, as well as being shared uh, with the Apostolic Nuncio in Washington. The Archbishop, under this plan that was passed, uh, would conduct an investigation and would engage primarily lay individuals to assist him. So the primary investigator into the matter likely would be a lay person, and he would also bring in other lay experts as needed to make a determination as to how to move forward. Do you think that that would 
suffice it for the general public, for the person in the pew to say, okay, this is it, and now where we go? Where do we go from here? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I personally, as a bishop, believe in lay involvement, particularly in these types of matters. So I would have been fine if it was mandated. But I think most of the bishops recognize the attention and the scrutiny that, rightly so, that these issues are receiving today. And um, I, I feel confident that we will always use lay involvement, lay persons, lay experts to, to help us to handle these cases. Using laypersons in this process is nothing new. Here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, we have a, a um, review board uh, that when we receive complaints against priests or accusations against priests, we would always bring that to our, our board. And um, that is primarily made up of lay individuals as well as some experts, and there's a couple of priests on there as well. So we, we've always engaged in lay involvement here in our diocese, and we'll continue to do so. As we move on to our next topic, I do want to remind our listeners, if, God forbid, you feel like you've been violated or uh, something has happened in either way, always call the police. That, that should be your first phone call. And then if you want to call the church, uh, fair enough, but uh, always call the local authorities to report the incident. You're the head of the uh, the treasurer for the USCCB, and right before the meetings began, some news came out of uh, West Virginia that one of the bishops there was inappropriately using funds and distributing fun, funds to, to friends and associates. That's not a common practice in our church today. W- what was your take on that, and what was the general feel? Well, John, I, I would like to think that the instance or case that you um, cited with the, the bishop in West Virginia is, is an exception to the rule. And while some of the information that came out about him was quite serious and disappointing, it's kind of sad to think that even today that a bishop would misuse his power and his authority within a diocese to misappropriate funds or to use funds for personal gain or lifestyle. As you said, I was elected treasurer of the USCCB, which I'll assume that term or begin that term right after the November meeting later this okay. year. But uh, but here in our own diocese, uh, myself, and I, I presume most other bishops, really embrace the fact that we're called to be good stewards. So we we are able to do the ministry that we do because of the generosity of our people, of our faithful, and we're very grateful for that. And in turn, we need our faithful to know that we take that responsibility seriously and that we're good stewards of the money that they give us uh, to further the mission of the diocese and the church. Does the diocese have, like at a parish, for example, I believe it's mandated that each parish has a finance council that kind of oversees with what the local pastor does with the monies and so forth. Does the diocese have that same kind of financial board? Yeah, we, we certainly do. We have a diocesan finance council, which meets on a regular basis. And again, is primarily made up of lay individuals from around the diocese. Most of them have some type of expertise in finance or real estate or even insurance or human resources. And then there's some pastors and priests that are asked to be on there as well. But they regularly review uh, our diocesan financial statements, uh, which are also audited, you know, for any concerns that they might have or want to bring forth about how how the money is being used, is being spent here in our diocese. And I know I've personally, as a institution, Spirit FM, within the diocese, we go through an audit every year to make sure that we're on top of things, things are reported properly and, and proper spending. So I want to assure our listeners that uh, the, the diocese is very much involved in keeping a close eye on how monies are, are used from the gifts from the people of God. 
jumping ahead now, uh, we saw in the news that President Trump had made a historic visit to North Korea and, in fact, stepped over the border in a visual, symbolic gesture of trying to reach out for peace. Some people would argue that was just a photo op. That's a whole separate conversation we won't get into. But it was interesting that Pope Francis commented on this kind of thing, and some people took a side on it. What is your take when it comes to the church? I know what it is about politics, but in this sure. Well, the um, the historic event that you spoke about, President Trump uh, actually stepping, being the first U.S. president to enter into North Korean uh, territory, happened on Sunday uh, just before the Holy Father came out to do the Sunday Angelus. Right. So he took the occasion to mention that and, in fact, praised the action as a step towards peace. Of course, our Holy Father doesn't really enter into politics, you know. Nor does Bishop uh, Parks. Nor do, <laughs> nor do I, not too much. But, right. but the Holy Father is called to be a visible instrument of peace here on earth and to promote peace. And so I think he was just taking the opportunity to say any action which our political leaders can take to further peace here in the world uh, is a good thing and should be commended. What is the church's role? I mean, I know what it is, but... Should we be more vocal since we're seeing a lot of tensions uh, with, with, the, with the border situation? You know, you've got Congress saying one thing, they're not going to put up a wall, but they'll appropriate $4 billion to assist the people. Yeah, so again, uh, the church's role is really to advocate for, the, for dignity and respect for all people, for the human person. And wherever we see that that dignity or respect is being violated— Uh, or put aside. The church, I think, not only has a right, but a responsibility through the call that we receive from our Lord to advocate for those individuals. Do you think sometimes that the, this is not exploitive, but they'll use photographs to push an agenda, and I've seen it over the last week a couple times. They showed the the father and child in the mud. We're now starting to see pictures coming from some of these, I'll call them, quote, detention centers. Where does this end? Yeah, well, the the visuals that you're speaking about, those photos and news stories and coverage are are very powerful. It's one thing to to talk about them, but when you actually see a photo or a a footage of some video that was taken, it actually brings it more alive for you, makes it more present, more real. And I, I think it was shocking for all of us to see that image of that father and daughter trying to cross the river to get to the United States, but they didn't make it. But we also have to put those things in context and remember that it's if we look at those things, we have a responsibility to, to consider the whole issue, right? Because you can see an image of something but not really know what happened right. or the circumstances. So there's a responsibility that goes along, not only on the part of the press, but as those who are receiving that information. Do you stay in contact, like, for example, when you were in Baltimore, do you— Talk to the, the bishops in, in Texas. Have, did, did anybody share anything at those meetings? So uh, it's funny you ask that because uh, bishops are kind of creatures of habit. We tend to sit in the same spots when we go to those meetings. So you meetings. have a spot? I, I do. I, I, <laughs> unfortunately, I tend to sit towards the front. So uh, oh, Okay, so you're I not the a, typical Catholic. I get a lot of camera time. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have to stay awake and pay attention. Sure. <laughs> but uh, the bishop actually that sits next to me at every meeting is Bishop Mark Seitz, who's the bishop of El Paso. Oh, okay. Uh, you, some of our listeners may have seen or heard that 
He had a uh, opportunity to actually go to the border uh, this past week and to assist or to uh, minister to, to pray with some individuals that were there at the border and desired to, to come into the United States. So he's been very much on the front line, and we do talk about it. Of course, it's always a topic at our meetings, at our bishops' meetings, and many of the bishops get up to express their opinions. But we're united as a church that we need to assist individuals when we can, certainly in a humanitarian way. Mm-hmm. Locally here, when you go to Mass this weekend, you might see a fresh face, a new face up at the pulpit because uh, the assignments that were that were meted out, I'll say, in April are now come to fruition uh, July 1st. A fresh start for many, many of our priests. Yeah, so July 1st marks the beginning of uh, new assignments for those that receive them this this year. So the past few weeks, no doubt, have been filled with saying goodbye, with farewell receptions, and probably some tears shed as well. Sure. But it's kind of a new beginning for our priests that are starting new assignments. And as I recently posted on social media, I hope that our, our people will pray for our priests as well as for our parishes uh, that are undergoing those changes during this time of transition. Because it is a time of transition, not only for the people, but for the priest himself. Most times they have to move uh, to a new location, to a new rectory, uh, which could be not very close to where they were. They have to reestablish or establish uh, professional relationships, maybe with doctors or banks and things of that nature. And then they have to get their new, get to know their new parish family. So uh, prayers are needed, John. You just had an anniversary here not too long ago. 20 years, wasn't it? Yes, I just celebrated my 20th year of ordination to priesthood. Right. So how many moves did you go through before you were a bishop? <laughs> Fortunately, uh, when I was ordained a, a priest for the Diocese of Orlando, I only had two parish assignments uh, over almost 13 years okay. there that I was uh, was responsible for. So it wasn't too much. Of course, you know, since I was made a bishop, I've moved three times now. First, you know, up to from Orlando to Pensacola, Pensacola, Tallahassee. I was there four and a half years and now just moving here uh, two and a half years ago to our diocese here in St. Petersburg. So like most people, I don't enjoy moving. It's not something I look forward to in terms of the practical aspects of having to pack and unpack and all that. But I've always found that uh, the Lord has been with me during those times of transition and also that the diocese to which I was going has always been very welcoming and, and very friendly. What about, you know, I see when the, the pastoral bulletin comes out and the new priest assignments, every once in a while I'll see uh, a religious order will be in charge of a parish or some sort of entity. What is the relationship with, with religious orders in a diocese? So sometimes on occasion we will ask a religious order to staff a a parish with priests. In other words, to take responsibility for it. It's still a a parish of the diocese, and ultimately as bishop I'm responsible for it. The religious community, whether it be the Franciscans or the Carmelites, uh, they can propose a pastor or a priest to be assigned there, but ultimately it has to be approved by me as the bishop. So we kind of work together. I have a very good working relationship with all the religious superiors of those different orders and communities. And likewise, if I feel that a change is necessary, I can contact the community uh, to request that they consider making a change there. For our listeners that either are Catholic and don't understand or those that aren't Catholic, what is religious order in general? What's the difference between a a diocesan priest and a, quote, religious priest? So a a couple of basic differences. Um, A religious priest or somebody that belongs to a religious order or community takes vows, you know, usually poverty, chastity, and obedience. 
diocesan priests don't strictly take vows, we make promises. And among those are obedience, of course, celibacy and chastity. So we we don't, as diocesan priests, make a vow or a promise of poverty, but yet we're called to live simple lives. Another difference is that uh, a religious community, so let's take, for example, the Franciscans or the Dominicans, or as I mentioned, the Carmelites, they find their origin in the belief that God has given them a special gift or a charism, something that they're called to do in the world. And so they form this community of priests and religious and lay followers who help to promote that mission in the world. Okay, so let's take Francis, for example. God put a a charism, a spirit into him to change the church and to form a community. And so the group that he formed were Franciscans, men who followed in the same direction. Right. Well, you know, Francis was given, talking about St. Francis now, right. Pope Francis, just right. to Thank clarify you for the that. Clarification. Uh, but uh, St. Francis of Assisi was given the call by, by God to rebuild his church, you remember? Mm-hmm. And he did that through living a, a, a very simple, a very humble life. And so that was kind of the gift, the charism that he received. And that's why even today, Franciscans tend to live a very austere lifestyle, very simple. Uh, in terms of their possessions and how they live. And oftentimes we, again, staying with the Franciscans, we often identify them with wearing the brown, what we call a, a habit. Yes, it would be the religious habit. Right. Correct. Now we've seen also when we see sisters, some wear the habit and some don't. Well, that's true. Uh, after Vatican II, it became kind of an optional thing, whether sisters wear that, uh, their original habit, whether they wear a modified habit, in other words, something a little more simple, uh, or whether they dress more like a layperson would dress because they're living, working, ministering within the world. So that's a decision that's made by each individual religious community. Do you have a preference? I mean, some people say, oh, I like the nuns when they're wearing the habit, and some, it's like a priest. Sometimes they see them and they're civvies, I'll call them. Do you have a preference either way without getting in trouble with Sister Marlene? <laughs> I would say, John, that uh, while certainly um, uh, the clothing that we wear uh, is significant and can, can give an example of something, but more importantly, it's by our actions. So whether uh, a religious wears a habit or they don't, most importantly, are they living the gospel? Are they living a life of love, a life of charity, a life of prayer? I do think for both priests and religious that wearing either clerics as a priest and a bishop or a religious habit can be a very visible, an external sign to the world of a particular call from God and the fact that you're not attached to worldly things, such as the most current clothing or styles, uh, just usually very simple clothing. So it can be a very good public witness for those that do wear either clerics or uh, religious habits. When I was uh, looking at the calendar this past week, preparing for the, the upcoming week, you know, I noticed throughout the month a lot of saint days. When I look at the religious calendar, there's there's boxes that are red, there's boxes that are white, there's some that are green, and you click on them, and there's some some that say solemnity, some that say memorial. What's the difference between all of these? Sure. Well, as a church, we celebrate, <laughs> and one of the things we celebrate during our liturgical year are the lives of the men and women that have gone before us that have been declared saints by the church, either because of their holiness of life 
or because they were martyrs. Uh, They died for the faith or on behalf of the faith. So the church recognizes them, and sometimes we have a period where we have a lot of those days which are uh, dedicated to remembering and and honoring a particular saint uh, for their life and and what they did. Uh, Some of them are what we call optional memorials, where it could be celebrated or mentioned during the Mass, but it doesn't have to be. That's the choice of the celebrant. Some are what are called obligatory memorials. Such Uh, as? Well, such as, for example... um, would be like St. Benedict, I think, would be one, okay. for example. Probably St. Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, these would be ones that, you know, because of the significance of those figures, uh, they would we would celebrate those universally in the church. Then there are also feast days, which are, uh, again, mostly for uh, apostles, for those that have passed and were martyred. Those are feast days. So, again, it's with a little bit greater solemnity or attention. And then finally, there's solemnities, uh, which are typically events such as like, you know, the Annunciation or uh, some other, right, Assumption, some other event in the life of our Lord. Does it matter how we worship on those days or does it just simply a reminder? Well, if you attend Mass on those days, the prayers generally would address the particular saint, uh, something about their life. Perhaps the priest or bishop might preach about that particular saint on that day as a way of inspiring us to to greater holiness. And, of course, those days that are obligatory, as you mentioned. Well, they're obligatory in that the priest who's celebrating Mass uh, celebrates that Mass for the day. But they're not obligatory that you have to go to Mass. Those are holy days of obligation, and there are only certain ones of those throughout the year. The next one being, and I'm quizzing myself now. I believe it would be the Assumption, Assumption. right? Assumption of our our Blessed Mother. And that's coming up not too... In August, mid-August. Doctors of the Church. St. Bonaventure is also coming up this month, I think. I don't know what he did. I'm sure I was told one time and I've forgotten, but what is a doctor of the Church? (laughs) That's a great question, and if I could share a little bit of my own ignorance. When I was a kid, now obviously small, um, I'd heard about these doctors of the church, and I asked my mom, I said, how come there were so many uh, like saints that were doctors, meaning like medical doctors? Right, <laughs> that, right. uh, I never really understood that. This was when I was small. Sure. But uh, she explained to me, and what we explain is that doctors of the church are those that, in terms of their writing or their preaching, have contributed significantly to the understanding of our faith, to the theology of our faith, to spirituality. And so they're given that title of doctor, almost like in an academic sense, and that they've made some significant contribution, usually written, but could also be, again, through their recorded preaching of, of something to do with our faith or explaining our faith. And there's not very many of them. No, there's not. There's, uh, there's a few. I mean, there's uh, for example, my patron, St. Gregory the Great, would be a doctor of the church. I think on the female side, I think St. Therese of Lisieux is also considered to be a doctor of the church, again, because of their spiritual or theological writings. Your name for a doctor of the church, and I know that your parents were very devoted and faithful Catholics. Back in the day, a lot of parents named their children after great people, whether it be a great person of their family, a family name, a grandfather or something of that nature. But usually, even then, that those were often, when you trace them back, going back to famous saints. Man, today, the names are all over the place. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think in many ways we've kind of lost that connection between naming our children and 
uh, are saints. You know, that was very common when I was in yourself and we were born in the 50s or 60s to be named after a saint. I'm John, John Thomas. John Thomas, you know, Gregory Lawrence uh, is myself. So, uh, but we have lost that a little bit today. We've gotten kind of secularized with with naming children and some of them I'm not sure how, how these, how individuals come up with these names. No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but I do think there was something very good about trying to, to name your, your child after a particular saint. Of course, at, at confirmation, uh, the well, child can, go, can always yeah. and should pick a uh, saint's name, a religious name. Because sometimes, I know as a bishop, you hear some saints that maybe you're not real familiar with. I do, and um, I just hope I can pronounce their names correctly when I <laughs> celebrate the sacrament with the young person. But most of them I'm, I'm kind of familiar with uh, at confirmation. Uh, some I'm not. And what's interesting today, and I might have mentioned this before, uh, today a, a common practice that I've noticed even more so here in our diocese is you'll see sometimes uh, – young men choosing the name of a female saint or really? a young woman choosing the name of a male saint. I mean, it's not common, but it's you do see it at almost every confirmation that I, that I would celebrate. Huh. I'm not sure why, but the important thing is that it's a saint, and hopefully they're trying to imitate in their life uh, the virtue of that saint. Well, as we wrap up our program today, would you lead us in a prayer that we always may use the saints as an example in our own lives as we walk? God, our Father, as we continue to journey through this summer season, we ask your blessing upon us, and we invoke the intercessions of the saints, those holy men and women that have gone before us, that we may imitate their virtue, their goodness, their love in our lives and in our relationships with one another. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For more with Bishop Parks, including past programs, his social media accounts, and ways to subscribe to this podcast, visit dosp.org bishop. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM 90.5 and the Communications Office of the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is made possible by the annual pastoral appeal and listeners like you. Thank you for your support.